God, meet us here in this place as we open up your word. We ask God that you would speak to us by your word, something that's, that's valuable, something that helps us to know, uh, something more of you helps us to walk in a closer relationship with you. So meet us here in this place and speak to us. Amen. All right, so how many of you remember the story the tortoise and the hare? All right, so give me the moral of the story, anybody. What is it? Slow and steady wins the race. Thank you, Ricky. Oh, oh Schmitty, that was you. I, I, I talked to you, Ricky. Oh, right. <laughs> I was going to say, Rick, I should have known. Should have known. <laughs> so, slow and steady wins the race, right? And so I was looking at this story and actually found there's a Native American legend, right, that tells a similar story, but it's slightly different version. It actually helps us with today's text, and it's about this overconfident trickster, the rabbit, being outwitted by a terrapin, which I didn't even know what a terrapin was. It's a small turtle, right? So this is how the Native American version of that tale goes. It goes like this. Rabbit and turtle met near a stream one morning, and they swapped some stories. And the rabbit was boasting that he was the fastest runner in the world, and turtle wasn't buying it. He said, I'll bet I can beat you in a race, said turtle. Rabbit scoffed and said, you're so slow, you hardly look like you're even moving. <laughs> and so they set the race for the next morning. Turtle was to wear this white feather in, his, uh, in a headband so that Rabbit would be able to see him when they were running in the tall grass. And they were supposed to run over four hills. And the one who ascended the fourth hill first was the winner. And so Rabbit was so cocky that he offered Turtle a head start. He, put, he said, I'm going to let you start at the top of the first hill. And so Rabbit hopped away, chuckling, brimming with confidence. He's the clever one. He's the boaster, the trickster. Turtle didn't stand a chance. Well, Turtle knew he was in trouble. So he gathered together his friends and his family, and they strategized and they devised a plan. And so what Turtle did was he gave three of his family members white feathers, just like the one he would be wearing. And then he took three of the turtles and his family, and he put one on top of the first hill, one on the second, and one on the third, and he placed himself on the top of the fourth hill right next to the finish line. And so the race begins, and Rabbit flew past Turtle on the plateau of the first hill like he was standing still, and when Rabbit reached the top of the second hill, to his incredible surprise, there's Turtle, white feather, plodding along, slow as molasses. Rabbit reached the valley floor, there was Turtle, still out ahead of him. So Rabbit ran past him laughing, but now he's a little bit confused. And by the time Rabbit reached the valley after the third hill, he's gasping for air, his energy was gone, and there was that pesky little turtle still narrowly out in front of him. And so he summoned up all the strength that he had left, and he sprinted toward the final hill and the finish line. He rounds the last corner, ascends the last hill, thinking that he's won the race, and there's Turtle waving his white feather, sitting at the finish line. Turtle had won the race. And so I, I looked at this story, and then online, everybody, people were angry at this story. They don't, they don't like it. Um, because they're, like, offended by it. Well, Turtle cheated. And we teach our kids not to cheat, right? Cheaters never prosper. That's what we always say. But it's not about slow and steady. It's about using what you got, outsmarting your foe with some good old-fashioned trickery. That's what Turtle used. And Rabbit is almost always the clever one in all of our folk tales, but this time, Turtle's the trickster who tricks that clever but arrogant rabbit to win the race. And so, this is perfect for today. 
because today's biblical story is actually about a trickster, Jacob, the rabbit. And so to understand it, we just have to remember our background to this story. All right? Jacob was the second-born twin, therefore not the one who held the privileges of birthright. Jacob, in kind of a battle of wits with his manly but maybe slightly dim-witted brother Esau, tricks his older brother into giving him his birthright. And then when his father is older and near blind, he tricks his dad into giving him the blessing that was supposed to be given to his older brother. Well, today, the trickster Jacob comes up against another trickster, his own uncle Laban. And so in today's story, the trickster Jacob is actually going to be done in, outmaneuvered by a clever, greedy, and devious little turtle, his uncle Laban. And so when I was looking at this, probably the greatest Christian Old Testament scholar, his name is Walter Brueggemann, he reminds us that the story is actually supposed to be heard as a little bit humorous. It's supposed to be funny, a bit like the race between the turtle and the rabbit. The big difference with the story is that although Jacob is fooled by his uncle and he pays dearly for it, ultimately what we're going to see in this story is that God is still at work, uh, that God's plan for Jesus is still very much alive and well. And so we listen to this crazy but funny tale. It's really, it's, this is an incredible story of deception and love triangles, polygamy, Ultimately, it's about an heir for Jacob that will continue Abraham's family tree. Um, but it, what it is more than anything is this, this story of God continuing to form the people of Israel. And so after hearing this, you're never going to be able to say again that the Bible is boring. I can assure you, this is not a boring story. So here we go. From Genesis 29, 15 to 28, and this is how it reads. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be. Now Laban knew had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were lovely, and Rachel was graceful and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man, so stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of that place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. Laban gave his maid Zilpah and his daughter Leah to be her maid. When morning came, it was Leah, and Jacob said to his uncle, Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, This is not done in our country, giving the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other, also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as a wife. Word of the Lord. I told you. <laughs> this is not boring, right? Almost made me uncomfortable a couple times. <laughs> Jacob leaves his home. He's traveled through the desert alone. We were here last week on foot, traveling with almost nothing in order to escape the wrath of this murderous brother. 
And he also, his job was to find himself a wife. And so he battled his fears in the wilderness. Surprisingly, what he learned last week was that God's promises had helped him actually overcome his fears. He learned that there was something that was stronger that could guide him that were not his fear. And so he continues on through the desert. And the kind of backstory here, right before we started to read, uh, read was that Jacob arrives at a well and he meets his future wife, Rachel. And so when I looked at this story, it kind of begs us to do a little bit of compare and contrast, right? Because for those of us that have been around this summer, we know about a month ago or so, we looked at Abraham's servant who found Isaac's wife at a well, all right? And so I think these stories are supposed to be compared together. And so in both stories, what we see is that God's hand was guiding both of these things. But here are some notable differences. Abraham's servant was sent out with ten camels, gold, silver, gifts, and Isaac he sets out on foot completely alone with nothing. The most, even more important than that, Abraham's servant bathed the story in prayer and thanksgiving. Jacob the rabbit relies only on his own efforts, totally oblivious to God's presence and guiding hand. And third, Abraham's servant, he was looking for a woman of character. You might, if you remember this story, remember that you know she showed this servant incredible hospitality and showed compassion. And that's what he was looking for for Isaac's wife. Lord Jacob, all he's looking for is one thing. He's looking for a, a good looker, right? That's all he cares about. <laughs> and so Jacob found what he was looking for, but the thing is, is it comes at a pretty heavy price. He was a slave for 14 years of his life. And so the story kind of forces us to ask this, I think, thought-provoking question is, does the love of the beautiful lead the soul upward. Is this really, what does this do, the love of the beauty for our relationship with God? And so the desert, of course, the well is the sustainer of life. The well in the desert was also the place where communities would gather. We know some of these, we remember some of our New Testament stories about gathering in wells also. And so Jacob, he's relieved. He finally arrives at the well in Haran. He's probably really hungry. He's thirsty, he's tired, and he sets eyes on Rachel for the first time, and it's a love at first sight. Jacob, the trickster, what he does right before we started reading is he starts showing off. That's what guys do. Start showing off. He picks up a giant boulder that covered the well, right? And it was a job that normally took two to three men to lift this stone that Jacob takes off the top of the well all by himself. And so when I looked at it, I learned in the Jewish tradition, Jacob is actually seen as a giant, a man of like superhuman strength because of this feat that he does to try to impress Rachel. And this is incredible. He steals a kiss with Rachel before even having gone on a first date. Rachel's really impressed at this moment, right? And so Jacob is up to his old tricks again. But this time, the trickster is about to get outdone. Uncle Laban, he pretends to care about his nephew Jacob. He offers to pay him for the work, and Jacob names his price. Jacob had arrived with nothing. He has nothing to offer his uncle except for himself. So he agrees to seven years of work for his servants, uh, for Laban's, as Laban's servant, for her daughter Rachel in marriage. And so this is the thing we have to remember, that Jacob's no longer family. He's no longer nephew-uncle relationship. He's now a hired servant. He's a slave. Seven years. And so we learn here that now Laban has two daughters. The older daughter, Leah, whose name actually means cow. Okay? 
And that offers us a clue to what we're talking about here. It's serious. Leah, in this scripture, was described by her eyes. The English translates the eyes as lovely, but it doesn't get at what the point of the text is trying to say. There's a question as to what the Hebrew means. Were her eyes, were they weak? Were they disfigured? Were they without sparkle? There was something about her eyes. And so, if Jacob really wants to get to know the older daughter, what this is saying, in my mind, is that he's going to have to look a lot deeper, right? Because Leah is not the candidate for Miss Mesopotamia, but her younger <laughs> sister, Rachel, is, right? And Jacob only has eyes for her. And so Leah, this poor sister, is grown up in the shadow of her beautiful and younger sister. Jacob's love for Rachel was like was blinding to his credit. He worked for seven years for his big wedding day all the time, it says. This is a great line. It says his love for her continued to grow, and the time of servitude passed as if only a few days. It's actually one of the like most tender lines in scripture about the power of love. Seven years of slavery was but a few days for Jacob because he loved her that much. So I officiate weddings all the time. Um, I've seen some unusual stuff happen, but not like this. Laban plans the feast, and evidently it must have been quite the party, right? Laban the trickster strikes again and outwits his nephew. Under the cover of darkness, with the bride veiled in accordance with Jewish custom, and probably having gotten his nephew more than a little bit drunk, he wakes up the next morning to discover that he slept with the wrong bride. Leah, the older sister, not the love of his life. I told you, this stuff is not boring. This is crazy stuff. It's supposed to be a little bit funny. Like, we're supposed to laugh at this. But it's also kind of sad, I think. Her own father, believing that she was unmarriable, marries her to a man who loves her sister. And so we feel for Jacob a little bit. We feel for Rachel a little bit. But what about Leah? We should feel, in my mind, perhaps more for her than any of them. Unloved by her father and now unloved by her husband. And so Jacob, he's rightfully furious. The turtle has outwitted the rabbit again. Jacob's love for Rachel was so strong, he agrees to seven more years of life as a slave to his uncle in order to marry her. And so when I looked at this, I was like, gosh, what do we make of this strange love story when marriage in our culture looks nothing like this? And I came up with a couple things that I find to be kind of interesting. And the first is that God is at work in our lives, not by giving us perfect relationships, but by showing us his love and his grace and his power, even in very imperfect situations. And the second thing that made me think is that God loves those that we deem unlovable. Those that we overlook, God doesn't overlook. And so this lectionary reading for today didn't take us to the end of this story, right? But a little bit of a spoiler alert is actually going to help us understand the story better. And so a few things that we can, we can think about. Rachel, after a time of not being able to have children, finally has Joseph. You remember Joseph, right? Technicolor Dreamcoat guy, that guy? 
And so we're going to pick up his story later. But today I want to finish with Leah. Leah's hope that she could find love and compete with her beautiful sister is crushed. And so when I thought about it, it seemed to me that there's like three overwhelming clouds that hang over this woman. She felt physically unattractive. She felt unwanted. And she felt unloved. And so there's this kind of ray of hope at the end of her story that kind of breaks through these dark clouds that surround her life. That would ultimately fill her and give her some self-worth. She discovered at the end of her story here that she was actually attractive to God. That God saw her as beautiful, even when her husband did not. Leah caught the eye of God and embraced God's love for her. And I love this text from 1 Samuel 16, 7. says that while humanity looks at outward appearances, the Lord looks at the heart. God saw something more than what Jacob was looking for. Those Jacob and God, when they were looking at the same thing when they saw Leah. And so God chose Leah whom Jacob had just completely overlooked. Now, Leah had seven children with Jacob. Each time she bore a child, she held out hope, the scripture says, that her husband would love her more. That didn't happen. It's just this tragically sad story. But there's a change. After the fourth child, we see a change in her. She finally learns that she can't change her husband. But what she can do is she can love the God that she finally realizes has loved her the whole time. So marriage is hard. Those of us that are married, we all know that. Husbands are often a little bit slow to change. <laughs> and so I found this funny letter that expresses this idea well. I'm a little bit of a sense of humor for this one. The letter says, Dear Technical Support, Last year I upgraded from Boyfriend 5.0 to Husband 1.0. And I noticed a distinct slowdown in overall system performance, <laughs> particularly in the flower and jewelry applications, which operated flawlessly under Boyfriend 5.0. The new program also began making unexpected changes to the accounting modules. In addition, Husband 1.0 uninstalled many other valuable programs, such as Romance 9.5, Personal Attention 6.5, and then installed undesired programs such as NFL 5.0 and Golf Clubs 4.1. Conversation 8.0 no longer runs and house cleaning 2.6 crashes the system. I've tried running nagging 5.3 to fix these problems, but to no avail. What can I do? Signed, desperate. Jacob is just totally clueless. Or, the other side is he simply doesn't care. But God hears this woman's suffering. God saw her tears, he heard the cries, he heard her prayers. And so we live in this world that prizes romantic love as the basis for strong marriages. But how does a person live in a marriage, in a relationship of any kind, where they feel unloved, unwanted, and unattractive? And so when I looked at the end of this, I think she shows us, she teaches us something. Because at the birth of her fourth child, this is what she says. She says, this time I will praise the Lord. This time, maybe not the first three times, but this time, on time number four, she changes. 
This time I will praise the Lord. She names her son Judah, which means praise. This time, she turned from expressing her yearning for Jacob's love to accepting God's love for her. She moved from a focus on what was missing in her life to a focus on the blessings that were already in her life, her children, whom she now viewed as a gift from God. And so Jacob may never change, but she figured out that she could make a change, and she did. And so I want to leave you with something to consider, something that just blows my mind. From the line of Leah's fourth son, Judah, comes Israel's greatest king, King David. From King David's line, many generations later comes whom? The Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Comes from Leah's line, not Rachel's. This mind-blowing stuff in my mind. The idea that God uses this crazy wedding scenario and was working out God's purposes and plan for Jesus Christ just blows me away. Even our best relationships are far from perfect. Rarely is our story like the perfect love stories, the ones we watch in the movies, but Leah shows us that we still do have a choice to make. We can focus on what we lack in the world, or we can focus on what we already have. And so she shows us a way of gratitude. And so even in the midst of less than perfect circumstances, even in the midst of less than ideal relationships, can we find joy in the blessings that God has given us? This is what she shows us. Can we see God's loving hand guiding, still at work, even in the messiness of our own lives? Many of us at some point in our lives will experience one of those three emotional clouds, feeling unattractive, unloved, or unwanted. We may feel those things. The thing that she reminds us is that maybe, maybe when we allow ourselves to be loved by God, who is crazy about us, we will never feel unloved again. That's what she teaches us. We pray with Loving God, when we rely on our looks, on our smarts, on our scheming, we realize that we always come up against someone else with more than what we have. God, may we learn to rely on you. And in those moments when we feel unattractive or unwanted or unloved, those moments when we can relate to Leah, Wrap your arms around each of us in those moments that we might know that we're never alone. Amen. Amen.